This week marks the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But is the agreement New Zealand signed up to at the UN so long ago still relevant? We have human rights laws in New Zealand. We have a Bill of Rights. We have a Human Rights Act. They don't have environmental rights in them. We simply, when we made those laws, didn't see environment as a threat. And who's watching to make sure we're living up to its ideals? They make those promises over there in the United Nations. But when they fly home, they have a sort of sudden attack of amnesia on the way home. And by the time the plane rolls into the airport at Wellington, they've forgotten those promises. Kia ora, I'm Wilhelmina Shrimpton, and today on The Detail, we take a look at human rights here in Aotearoa and whether this universal declaration is doing what it needs to protect them. New Zealand's acting chief human rights commissioner is Saunoa Mali'i Dr Karenina Sumeo. She tells me it's a job that's been built on the foundations of the Universal Declaration. The global roadmap, she says, outlines 30 rights and freedoms that should be given to every citizen. It's something that was developed uh, many, many years ago in 1948 when the United Nations was drafting its charter. And New Zealand was uh, apparently one of the countries that lobbied for human rights to be included in that charter. And so what basically um, is included in its fundamental rights, for example, uh, the right to freedom, to live free of discrimination, uh, freedom of expression, you know, equality, gender equality, uh, the right to access education and health, um, you know, all these rights, and a lot of them are captured in our Bill of Rights law. So we've, in a way, we've taken these fundamental rights at the global level and we've corp- incorporated them in our Bill of Rights. It was, of course, established, you know, 75 years ago. It's the 75th mm. anniversary mm. this year. That was a long time ago to, to pull together a document like that. Has it changed over time? And how has it changed over time, if that's the case? Yeah, well, the document exists. It's still, it, it's almost timeless because those fundamental rights um, are as relevant to us today and probably will be relevant, you know, for humanity going forward. In general, it doesn't need to uh, evolve, but I think we have to incorporate those rights and make sure that they are kept in all of our laws. How do we make sure that we actually stick to, to what's been what's been written and how is it actually monitored? Because it's obviously formed the guideline for the formulation of, of other laws and domestic laws and, like you say, the Bill of Rights. Our, our country has lots of you know, courageous human rights defenders, be it Amnesty International, our NGOs, um, our women's group. I mean, there are lots of voices that are there calling on government, holding our our government to account and um, calling on our members of parliament, you know, to be brave. And also one of the roles that the Human Rights Commission does is we also have the ability to go to the UN and provide our own view of how um, our government is doing, how how our society is uh, progressing. And we may have a different view to government, um, and that's completely all right. That's why we're given that opportunity. Aotearoa New Zealand is about 25 years out of date in relation to its human rights, its respect for human rights. That's Human Rights Commissioner Paul Hunt speaking out on International Human Rights Day a year ago. But speaking out has a price to pay. The new Justice Minister is refusing to express confidence in the Chief Human Rights Commissioner, Paul Hunt. 
Paul Goldsmith says the commission will not be abolished, a policy on which the ACT Party campaigned. But he says he will be making changes and refuse to express confidence in Mr Hunt. Meanwhile, the ACT Party is reigniting calls for the commission to be abolished entirely. I asked the chief executive of the Human Rights Commission, Meg Deronde, for her response to Mr Goldsmith's comments. Well, it's not for us to to comment uh, on what the minister says, but we're an independent Crown entity. We're an A-status accredited national human rights institution. uh, And I know we're really looking forward to working with the government to advancing human rights for everyone in Aotearoa. And we will present to government uh, based on the voices of our communities who think that perhaps while we have programs, while we have invested and changed laws, actually some people's reality still hasn't changed. So you, of course, report back um, to, to you know the international body. Who from yeah. there exactly measures and assesses our performance? Who makes the final decision as to whether we're making target or not? So we're about to go again in 2024 uh, for our universal um, periodic um, report. I think it happens every every four or five years. And you'll have a number of governments who will look at our government's report and then ask questions about, you know, about about our progress. And then they will make recommendations. So it's not just one one state that looks at our report there'll be a a selection of or or selected states who look at our report and then ask questions of our government now civil society including the human rights commission will have an opportunity to front those governments who have uh, been tasked for examining our report so that we can provide our view of uh, of the progress that we're making of where the gaps are and uh, perhaps where we could uh use their voice to put pressure or encouragement uh, to our government to do better. So that's how that system generally works. And then it comes to us. They can make lots of recommendations at the UN, but at the end of the day, you know, we have sovereignty, we make our own decisions. It's obviously a great standard to have, a great guideline. But surely something like this, and I know that this has been raised as um, a bit of criticism around um, the Declaration of Human Rights, is that something like this perhaps isn't a one-size-fits-all, that you know all countries have different values, they have different belief systems. Can they all be legitimately be overseen by one universal document? There's a statement of all these rights, but they're not binding. So the Declaration is also accompanied by other conventions, such as the um, Convention of Elimination of Discrimination Against um, Against Women, um, you know, Convention of um, on the Rights of, of Indigenous Peoples, um, you know, Convention Rights of Children, and so forth. And it's the combination of all of those. Um, as well as a declaration that that gives us leverage, as opposed in the language, to support our members of parliament to shape laws that support human rights. So it's not just one; it's not just a declaration. The declaration is accompanied by all of those other things. Um, we may sign a declaration; it doesn't necessarily mean we then incorporate it into our into our local our national laws. So that's the next step. So countries can essentially pick and choose what guiding documents they use to to mm-hmm. help them. Yes, I mean we we have sovereignty. So it is it's our country, our people. Um and you know human rights about progressive advancement of human rights. It has to be, you know, fitting within our resources. Um, and that's why sometimes I use the word courage before. We need to make decisions that are courageous and look beyond the now. 
um, so that all of our people can be lifted up. So, um, you know, that is the job of the Human Rights Commission to, to use these conventions and to ask our leaders to be brave, not only leaders in parliament, but also our business leaders um, who have a huge influence on the quality of life and people's dignity through wages and upskilling opportunities and so forth. If it's a document that, you know, countries can pick and choose, does that kind of defeat the purpose of the document in the first place? So it's a standard and it's not binding. So what's the point? What it provides is 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 an opportunity for us. So it's really important for us that we have um, we have the benchmark because we can be, be too comfortable that perhaps we've reached a benchmark, but actually we, we haven't, we're not there yet. So it's still very, very useful for us. 75 years on from, from its creation and establishment, how do we measure up? We were the first country to give women the vote, but yet we have this huge gender pay gap that is, you know, largely unexplained. It's put down to discrimination. So we have a long way to go. Uh, so that's a that's a really humbling reality for us. We're a very wealthy nation and we have you know, significant numbers of children living in poverty and hardship. That's nothing to be proud of. Well, there's one area, for, for example, you know, where the public is aware, almost like every day, every week, there's a story of migrant exploitation that's occurring, you know, within our country. People who have been brought in by companies with the promise of work and so forth. Initially, when when those stories came out, there was a feeling perhaps of just a few bad apples. But it's almost like every day we're reading a story. We're, we're talking about a systemic issue. So, unfortunately, we don't yet have modern slavery laws. Um, but if we look at Europe, if we look at Australia and other places, they already have them. So they recognise the issue and are doing something about it. Um, we're still yet to see that. You may have come across World Vision's campaign on it. We've made progress. A proposed law ready to go. But recently, progress has halted. And the government's silence is deafening. Sign the open letter. Tell our government. Stop delaying modern slavery legislation. So I think that's that's one of the areas where we're lacking, you know, we're behind our, our counterparts. Certainly around uh, pay transparency, again, there are laws in UK, Canada, Germany, other places, Australia, we don't have one yet. A lot of what you've mentioned is obviously stacked up against our last government's performance um, in their last term, but what... What are the predictions of what directions this new government will go in and how their policies might place us? Because, you know, you look at the, the, the news cycle recently and it doesn't feel like we're off to a great start when it comes to the treaty principles. We're all aware that, um, that there's a lot of um, disharmony and concern and, and arrest amongst our tangata whenua. And it hurts us who are not tangata whenua to see that. And so instead of starting off with a um, harmonious thing, we, 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 we've got this period where some people are feeling um, anxious, certainly even just attacks on the use of te reo. I would use that word attack because that's how it feels to some of, tang- of our tangata whenua, that they're, they're simply their language even is being discussed as being marginalised or to be removed. So for someone to remove the language of Indigenous peoples, that is quite a significant call. Clearly those policies sort of endanger that guideline created by the Declaration of Human Rights. Are there any other policies that 
that you can see as part of our new government that also threaten that. Yeah, the fair pay agreements. News Hub has obtained a leaked cabinet paper about the coalition government's plans to repeal fair pay agreements. It reveals the move would disproportionately impact Māori, Pacifica and young people. It shows the Workplace Relations Minister is at odds with official advice. Scrapping the deals dumped the FPAs was a big campaign promise for National and they'll now be gone by Christmas as part of the coalition's 100-day plan. It's something that we opposed in opposition, as did the other parties in the coalition as well. Uh, and it's something that we want to push on and actually get repealed. We just don't believe that FPAs are actually uh, good to actually creating good business environment and therefore good long-term certainty for employees. Our new government is announcing that they're going to repeal that fair pay agreement and take away that really important staircase um, for some of our lowest paid workers to get to get a foot up. Bus drivers, hospo workers, security guards, cleaners, early childhood workers and supermarket staff have all had FPAs already approved. And on the whole, FPAs were expected to boost wages by up to $600 million a year. So that's one thing that's concerning. Um, the um, the the, uh, the 90-day trial period... Um, that's another area of concern, again, because that will disadvantage our um, our most marginalised workers. And so for me, that's a fundamental, uh, huge fundamental risk to a violation of human rights. So I will be writing uh, to relevant ministers and so forth, um, representing those voices, those stories, um, to ask them to reconsider um, the repealing of the 90-day of the, the trial provisions and protections for workers. So those are two areas I think uh, need urgent attention. So if the declaration isn't binding and each signing nation can pick and choose parts to uphold, does it actually have enough teeth to make a difference? University of Auckland Professor Claire Charters specialises in Indigenous peoples' rights in international and constitutional law. She tells me that while the declaration itself may not be binding, parts of it have been incorporated into binding legal instruments. Such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, Also, some rights in the Universal Declaration are considered customary international law, which are binding as part of New Zealand's common law. So you might say that the right to life and liberty, for example, are customary international law, which is binding. So while a declaration per se is not binding, most of the rights or many of the rights in the in the declaration are binding. So if it's not legally binding as well, I'm really interested to know um, what the penalties are for not sticking to it. Or do those penalties only apply for the laws that have stemmed from it, that have used it as a guiding document? Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly the the treaties that, that followed the declaration are binding. And as a result, uh, New Zealand is subject to uh, review very often uh, against those uh, uh, treaty rights and, and human rights uh, in a bunch of different ways. So there's treaty bodies, what's called treaty bodies that can hear complaints by individuals that and on a regular basis review states such as New Zealand for their compliance and so on. Um, generally, though, uh, New Zealand will also um use, it has used, the declaration uh, as a basis for its negotiating positions on human rights on a regular basis in its activities at especially uh, the Human Rights Council, which is the UN's 
major and main uh, human rights body. Are there any sort of high-profile court cases or anything similar in New Zealand where a decision has lent heavily on the guidance of the Declaration of Human Rights? So, for example, the the New Zealand Bill of Rights is based on the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. But um, so that that is binding law and the legislation, obviously, in, in, in New Zealand. And also you have the Human Rights Act. But to your specific point, uh, yes, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for example, building on the Declaration, has been uh, has been said to be influential in interpreting New Zealand law. There has been comments in cases where uh, the judges have said, well, we have to be aware that there's international supervision. Um, and of course, we, New Zealand would always try um, and, and the courts would always try to interpret laws in a way that are consistent with our international human rights obligations, including the Declaration. You've, of course, mentioned the, the Bill of Rights, which, which stems from it. Are there any other sort of domestic laws that are primarily dictated by the provisions within this? Perhaps not as explicitly as the Bill of Rights Act, but the, to the extent that... Um, we have, for example, rules around habeas corpus or uh, rules around liberty. They are consistent with New Zealand's human rights obligations. So, yes, um, I guess um, in a way, and, and and also in prevention of torture, and you might say uh, legislation around children's rights um, and dealing with, uh, for example, child poverty, that all those articles, for want of an easier word, um, in legislation are consistent with New Zealand's human rights obligations. Have there ever been situations where perhaps a domestic law that relates to that Bill of Rights leading up to the Declaration of Human Rights needs to be amended or changed to adhere to the Declaration um, and would that be, you know, with a change of government or, or something along those lines? So I don't think New Zealand is is even close to compliant with uh, the International Bill of Rights, which includes the Declaration and some of the other treaties, um, human rights treaties I spoke about. And, and, and thinking about current policy, for example, um, in, in the new government, this idea of taking measures to say that the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is not binding, um, caution around New Zealand's human rights international obligations, those are signalling that we're going in the wrong direction uh, with respect to human rights compliance, including with the Declaration. And obviously a a prime example of that would have been the protests recently relating to to the treaty principles. It's obviously a, a, a bad message like you're saying, that's being sent. But what does that mean in terms of, I guess, us on yeah, us on the world stage? Is there a pressure to adhere to it? Are there any consequences at all? I mean, absolutely. New Zealand's reputation as a human rights-abiding uh, nation will be compromised severely, I think, um, by its stance here, which I guess um, as a result, you lose your your moral authority in this area, particularly also in convincing other states to take more of a human rights approach. So I think there's, there's that issue. New Zealand will be assessed uh, under a bunch of international human rights supervision mechanisms and 
I think to the extent that there is a backward step on human rights, there will be censure of New Zealand, which can be uh, used as, as a political tool to put pressure on the government. And as mentioned, um, there are courts to do take into account New Zealand's human rights obligations, particularly when enforcing, for example, the Bill of Rights Act. So that so that can be powerful too, albeit uh, not as binding obligations. So uh, human rights obligations on, on New Zealand have uh, are, are important. New Zealand can be found to be uh, inconsistent, acting inconsistently with those rights, which can be, you know, very powerful and galvanising, I guess, uh, pressure and political pressure on government. So it is more of a pressure-based response, though, as opposed to be, as opposed to being hauled in front of um, a court or an international, um, you know, leader to 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 actually be penalised. So it's more of a pressurised situation. Do you think that there needs to be something? more strict to in order to enforce that? Because then otherwise it feels like, what's the point of the declaration in the first place? Sure. Um, just going back a step, New Zealand will be uh, assessed by what are a little bit like courts at the international level. There are tribunals that assess New Zealand's uh, reputation and New Zealand's compliance with, with human rights. There's also something called the Universal Periodic Review, which is where other states uh, question New Zealand on its human rights compliance and uh, quite often find that New Zealand is, is inc- acting inconsistently with human rights. So those are suggests that New Zealand's breaching its international legal obligations, right? Um, so that's certainly very powerful. And as mentioned, it can can undermine New Zealand's moral authority in these spaces. So that can be incredibly powerful. Um, in terms of what, what happens domestically, certainly our courts are cognizant of these rights and their decisions can be influenced by rights and international treaties and um, obviously the declaration to the extent that it's reflected in, in treaty rights. Um, so, and then, there, and then there's the political pressure, uh, which which is part of all of that. Uh, so it's certainly not toothless. There's a role of, um, in, in fact, far from it. And there's a really important role for the Human Rights Commission here to highlight uh, these breaches of international human rights uh, obligations and to, I guess, shine a light on them and encourage New Zealanders to, you know, hold the government to account. What will that mean? You know, if we are criticised, what what will that actually mean in, in a tangible sense? Mainly it's it's political pressure, it's, it's reputation. New Zealand cares a lot about its reputation generally. It will certainly be embarrassing. And, you know, one would hope that would galvanise the government into more consistent behaviour with human rights. That's it for today. I'm Wilhelmina Trimpton. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Dr. Karenina Sumeo and Claire Charters. Matewa. Matewa.